You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, I'm Dr. Scott Grab. I'm the Executive Director of University Diabetes Care Associates, and you are listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to Senior Rx Radio, a podcast publication part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. This special podcast episode is a presentation supported by and created on behalf of Lilly USA LLC. The podcast presentation content has been reviewed for consistency with FDA guidelines and is not approved for continuing medical education credit. This podcast is not an endorsement for any specific medication or therapy modality. Today's host is Dr. Chad Wars, Executive Director and CEO of the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists. Our guest is Dr. Scott Drab, Associate Professor of Pharmacy and Therapeutics at the University of Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy. And now, here's your host, Chad Wars. Hi, and welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. This is Senior Rx Radio. I'm Dr. Chad Wurz. I'm the Executive Director and Chief Executive Officer of the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists. And today we're going to be talking about the pathophysiology of type 2 diabetes, as well as the treatment strategies for patients with this disease. I have alongside me Dr. Scott Drab, Associate Professor of Pharmacy and Therapeutics at the University of Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy, who has an extensive background in this area. Thanks so much for joining us, Scott. Thank you for having me. We have a listening audience that has a wide range of experience. So let's start by taking a minute just to kind of set the landscape of type 2 diabetes. So maybe you can start by explaining how normal physiologic glucose levels are maintained and how this kind of goes sideways in people that have type 2 diabetes. Sure. You know, according to uh, the 2016 Guyton and Hall textbook of uh, medical physiology, in healthy individuals, glucose is released from digested food following a meal. Now, it turns out that this is absorbed into the bloodstream, which stimulates the release of insulin from pancreatic beta cells. Insulin promotes the uptake of glucose from the blood by multiple organs, where it is either used or it's uh, used or stored as a form of energy. In patients with type 2 diabetes, however, this process is altered because the body's cells begin to become insulin resistant and therefore they don't effectively take up the glucose. You know, there was a 2009 publication in the journal Diabetes where Dr. Ralph DeFranzo states that initially beta cells can compensate for the insulin resistance in the liver and muscle by increasing insulin production and secretion. But ultimately, what happens is, is beta cell function declines. In addition, other pathophysiologic defects, such as diminished incretin effect, contribute to the persistent hyperglycemia that characterizes type 2 diabetes. Therefore, as diabetes progressive, progresses, many of our patients require multiple oral agents or injectable treatments along with diet and exercise to achieve adequate glucose control. Okay, great. Thanks for that description. I think it's important, uh, as many of us that are in practice understand, this is a this is a disease that is growing in prevalence and certainly affecting uh, older adults in this country. 
We also know as our kind of knowledge base grows that there's really two different kind of glucose levels that contribute to total hyperglycemia. Can you discuss that briefly? Yes, of course, you're right. It turns out when we look at uh, blood glucose, we can look at fasting plasma glucose, and we can also look at postprandial blood glucose. Now, fasting plasma glucose, which is oftentimes abbreviated FPG, refers to glucose levels when a person has been fasting. Of course, that's not eating for at least eight hours. Whereas postprandial glucose, oftentimes you will see that being abbreviated as PPG, refers to glucose levels about one to two hours after a meal. Now, Monier and colleagues published a paper in 2003 in the journal Diabetes Care, demonstrating that as the A1C levels increase, it turns out that fasting plasma glucose contributes more than postprandial blood glucose to overall hyperglycemia. So it's very important to address both fasting as well as postprandial blood glucose if we are going to achieve recommended A1C goals. You know, that's really interesting. I think as, as this disease has evolved and our understanding of it has evolved through the years, um, we found new ways to sort of provide benefit to patients through different manipulations of, of uh, the system with pharmaceutical agents. One particular class is an injectable class of drugs called GLP-1 receptor agonists. Can you talk about what GLP-1 receptor agonists are and how they work? Well, you know, Chad, that's really a, a good question. Uh, in 2007, there was a uh, publication in the Journal of Gastroenterology where Baggio and Drucker indicated that GLP-1 receptor agonists provide a more physiologic approach to lowering A1C. It turns out that GLP-1 receptor agonists facilitate the body in releasing its own insulin, and that's done in a glucose-dependent manner, which means when glucose levels are high, we see the effect, and as glucose levels come into a normal range, the effect is diminished. We also know that GLP-1 also causes pancreatic alpha cells to lower glucagon secretion. Now, in 2013, Maloney and colleagues published a report in the journal Diabetes, Obesity, and Metabolism stating that GLP-1 receptor agonists are glucose-dependent, leading themselves to lower risks of hypoglycemia when used with medications other than insulin and insulin secretagogues. And according to uh, the 2016 position statement in the journal Diabetes Care uh, by Munchie and uh, colleagues, this is particularly important for long-term care patients whose inconsistent eating habits put them at a greater risk for hypoglycemia. Great. And I think that's an important feature when we talk about uh, older adults, especially those that live in long-term care facilities. Now, there are a variety of agents out there that are used to manage type 2 diabetes. How do these GLP-1 receptor agonists compare to basal insulin, especially with regards to the hemoglobin A1C reduction, changes in body weight, and the incidence of hypoglycemia? Okay, if you look at it, um, what we've seen is a uh, recently released 2018 ADA EASD consensus, uh, consensus statement 
And what it said was that trial evidence shows that GLP-1 receptor agonists demonstrate a similar or even better efficacy in A1C reduction than insulin, and that's basal, premixed, or basal bolus. In fact, in a 2017 meta-analysis published in the journal Diabetes, Obesity, and Metabolism, comparing the efficacy of GLP-1 receptor agonists with insulin, Singh and colleagues asserted that one key difference between the effects of GLP-1 receptor agonists and insulin uh, is on patient body weight. And that is that the GLP-1 receptor agonists are associated with a slight decrease in weight, whereas insulin is generally associated with weight gain. Now, the 2018 ADA-EASD consensus statement reports that GLP-1 receptor agonists and insulin are associated with a risk of hypoglycemia. However, the risk is relatively higher with insulin than it is with the GLP-1 receptor agonists. And of course, this risk is even higher if you're using bolus insulin. So really, in a nutshell, uh, the 2018-ADA-EASD consensus statement recommends the treatment with GLP-1 receptor agonists before insulin uh, in patients who need additional glucose lowering with an injectable medication. That's great information, and I think that's really important, especially as we think about the elderly population. Uh, we know there's a high prevalence of type 2 diabetes in our older adults. So what challenges do these patients face, especially those that may be living in a long-term care facility? Well, you know, I'm glad that you asked that question. Uh, Muncie and colleagues indicated that there is a high prevalence of type 2 diabetes among elderly individuals. In fact, it turns out that the prevalence of diabetes ranges from 25% to 34% within the long-term care population. You know, this actually indicates that as many as one in three long-term care patients may suffer from diabetes and with the vast majority of them having type 2 diabetes. Now, it's well established that type 2 diabetes increases cardiovascular risk. But here's the thing. In the elderly population, type 2 diabetes also increases the risk of several common geriatric comorbidities, such as cognitive impairment, physical disabilities, and depression. Munshi again reported that the cognitive impairment in particular can present multiple challenges to controlling type 2 diabetes in these patients. Cognitive dysfunction, uh, dysfunction can make it more difficult to routinely monitor blood glucose levels, for example, and adjust insulin doses accordingly. Also, long-term care patients who are cognitively impaired may not be able to recognize when they have hypoglycemia and may not be able to communicate this to their caregivers. You know, one of the things I think that we're learning about long-term care is that not only are the patients that we're taking care of becoming more sophisticated and complex, but we also have to think about how that has a role in the difficulty it is from a caregiver perspective, specifically the people that are working in the long-term care facility. So what kind of challenges do you see that long-term care staff members face for managing their patients with type 2 diabetes? Well, you know, that same report by uh, Munchie and colleagues states that the staff 
face such challenges as evolving diabetes treatment landscape, reliance on sliding scale insulin, inappropriate dosing or timing of insulin, the lack of comfort uh, with new injectable agents, and of course, a general failure to individualize patient care. And I think that's really important. If you look at what we're trying to do in the care of these individuals, it is about patient-centered care. And we've spent a lot of time focusing on the different modalities that we're using to treat type 2 diabetes because we want to make sure that we measure the risk and the benefit. So recognizing that hypoglycemia is one of those risks in older, older adults, how does that risk inform management strategies for long-term care patients with type 2 diabetes? Well, there are multiple factors that increase the risk of hypoglycemia in the long-term care patients, including impaired renal function, um, variable appetite and food intake, slowed intestinal absorption, and polypharmacy. Again, if you look at Munchie's uh, uh, article, you'll see that the risk of hypoglycemia is the most important factor in determining the glycemic goals that we set for long-term care patients. Hypoglycemia is also the leading limiting factor in the glycemic management of insulin-treated patients with type 2 diabetes. So to just wrap things up, Beyond lifestyle modifications such as diet and exercise, what other management strategies may be used in long-term care patients with type 2 diabetes to achieve the glycemic goals that we're after? Well, of course, uh, you know, that is a good question, and uh, certainly it's a, a multifactorial approach. But uh, Muncie and colleagues, uh, again, asserted that a, a simplified treatment regimen is going to be preferred and better tolerated in the long-term care patients that have type 2 diabetes, uh, and that the sole use of sliding scale insulin should be avoided. Some of the GLP-1 receptor agonists are administered as once weekly injections as opposed to daily or even more frequent injections of insulin, which can help ease the burden of frequent medication dosing on the long-term care staff. The once-weekly dosing of some GLP-1 receptor agonists can also help overcome the obstacle of irregular eating schedules of these patients and the risks of hypoglycemia that patients often face with insulin administration. Because the GLP-1 receptor agonists are glucose-dependent, these agents may be very useful in providing clinical benefits for our long-term care patients while demonstrating a low incidence of hypoglycemia, except uh, when they may be used with insulin or the insulin secretagogues. Well, Dr. Drab, I just want to thank you for being here today and talking about this issue. I think as we talk to caregivers uh, and clinicians that work with older adults that are in long-term care facilities, we're always striving to provide benefits in their medication treatments at the lowest degree of risk. And it's one of the challenges of that population. And this information goes a long way to help us better, be better prepared and better manage our patients in the long-term care setting. So thanks for being here. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was a great pleasure. Okay. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network uh, and Senior Rx Radio. Uh, we appreciate your, your attendance. And again, thank you for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network.
The following information are references to support today's podcast. Number one, Hall J.E., in Hall J.E. Editor. Guten and Hall Textbook of Medical Physiology, 13th Edition, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, L. Sieber, 2016, 983 through 999. Number two, DeFranzo R.A., Diabetes, 2009, 58, 4, 773 through 795. Number three, Nakem et al., Diabetologia, 1986, 29, 1, 46 through 52. Number four, Monier L. et al., Diabetes Care, 2003, 26, 3, 881 through 885. Number five, Baggio LL et al., Gastroenterology, 2007, 132, 6, 2131 through 2157. Number six, Milani AR et al., Diabetes Obese Metam, 2013, 15, 1, 15 through 27. Number seven, Munchi MN et al., Diabetes Care, 2016, 39, 2, 308 to 318. Number eight, Davies MJ et al., Diabetes Care, 2018, 41, 12, 2669 through 2701. Number nine, Singh S. et al., Diabetes Obese Metam, 2017, 19, 2, 228 through 238. Number 10, Levin PA et al., Diabetes Metab Syndrome Obesity, 2017, 10, 123 through 139. Number 11, Lozano Ortega G et al., Cure Med Res Opinion, 2016, 32, 5, 807 through 816. Number 12, Garber AJ et al., Endocurpact, 2018, 24, 1, 91 through 120. 